Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I used to be your regular host, and my name is Josiah, and I am here to just give a brief heads up that today's episode, featuring a Pastor Amy, is part two. Our guest host, also named Amy, wants to make sure that you know that there is a part one to today's episode. So if you have not listened to it yet, please pause this episode, go to part one, and enjoy. Without further ado, this is Pastor Amy interviewing yet another Pastor Amy. Pastor Amy Pelfrey to our part two of our discussion. Um, and today we're going to focus the second part of our conversation specifically on um, your ministry to kids and youth with a focus on youth. And so um, just to get us started, you have kind of self-identified your ministry to mainly unchurched urban, underprivileged youth. Um, yes. Do you want to tell us, like, what does that encompass? And does that, is that a, give us like a, a, a small um, look into what that means. Um, so mostly that means, uh, I can't even say mostly. Um, there's a whole bunch of little pieces that it means, but one of it is the van will pick them up most likely. Um, and we will, you know, I talked about this before, we'll feed them on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights. Um, because sometimes we don't know, we don't know what food looks like at home. And also I want this to feel like a family. Um, but it also means like sometimes there have been behavioral things that, weren't purposely behavioral things. So I think like when we think about church, we, it's easy to say like they should know how to behave in church or you know how to behave in church or whatever. But what does in church even mean if you've never been in church? So sometimes they appear to be like actively misbehaving when actually they're probably just playing. Like they don't have the filter for church. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really great. So, um, and I, I didn't like put that into words for a long time. What I did always know is like kids are kids. So I'm a pastor's kid and grew up in the church. And that means I knew even better how to misbehave in church because I knew where things were. I knew like, so then coming into this situation and like people just wanting kids to behave, I'm like, but why, why they're like 12, (laughs) why would they behave? Um, and then you add the aspect that if mom or dad or whoever has never consistently taken them to church, why would they even know what is going on in a sanctuary to behave for it? So it's been, that's part of the reason we don't always go to the sanctuary, actually. Um, 
because I don't want it to be about quote behaving. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a, like one of the really big things is when you're dealing with kids who are unchurched, you can't, you can't approach it the same way. Yeah. So one of my questions for you is what do you wish the church knew about, um, this population? And, and what I really mean is what do you wish the church would take on or even adopt in their overall attitude or, or be willing to learn so that they could be more hospitable? Um, it's kind of, it's, it sounds so simple. It's kind of the, like, let the children come to me. Mm. Like that's that. And that's not simple. Mm. Um, but I think it gets lost in, of course, the children are welcome at church. So we have children at church. Of course they can come. But we always carry this idea of what children are supposed to act like at church or look like at church or dress like at church. And it's not just about getting the kids to church. Like, who cares what they look like? Who, <laughs> who cares if they know how to sit still? Like, if they are not at church, we are not, we are not doing our job. Um, yeah, we can have Jesus anywhere, but if they are not actually welcome in church as they are, we are not letting the children come to Jesus. And I think that we forget that actually the depiction in the Bible is a perfect example because it was in a time when children were supposed to be seen and not heard. They weren't supposed to like, they weren't supposed to be out of order at all. And yet they were clamoring to get to Jesus. So they were probably even like, you know, not angrily, but kind of like fighting to get up to him, trying to talk to him, trying to whatever. And they saw, the adults saw Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a serious person. And were trying to make sure the kids didn't get in the way of his ministry, of his sermon, of the serious stuff. And Jesus was like, uh, the serious stuff can literally wait, though. You guys are going to be fine. <laughs> so let the kids come to me. And that feels simple until you start letting it happen. And then it's, and then it's messy. And then it's loud in the sanctuary. And then you, like, my biggest reminder whenever we're down with the adults and the kids are excited, the teens and kids are excited and what, it doesn't matter what we're doing. My biggest reminder for them is like, don't trip the old people. Like mm -hmm. you can be excited, you can move around, but you've got to move slow enough. And so that's one of the things is like, this is kind of off topic, but I never want to like make them feel like they have to act a certain way, mm -hmm. but also to like be careful too. And you're saying like to be like part of respecting loving our neighbor is to remember who our neighbor is and so in the same way that you want your older members of the congregation to love these kids where they're at the kids in turn need to say my neighbor are elderly and they might not be as balanced <laughs> and so if I bump them 
you know, there's danger of injury or, yeah. I yes. get what you're saying. I've said these same things to my children. So I, I think that's like it. one of the things, because for a long time, it was about, even for me, it was like trying to keep them quiet. It was trying to keep them whatever. And then it got to the point where it was like, okay, let's, let's talk about how we, that, and it really did come down to that. Let's talk about how we respect the adults in the sanctuary and made it more about respecting them as elders than it was about behaving in church. Like, I think what I hear you saying is to like remove the us and them and then say, this is, if this is all of our church, how do we exist together? And you, you hinted at we eat together as the reason we eat together is because that's what families do. And so the same thing is like families worship together. And so if we're going to, if we're going to be in the same space, you wouldn't come in and, and bust it and hurt grandma, right? <laughs> you, would, you would treat her with loving care because she's fragile the same way you wouldn't do that to your newborn cousin or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we see, if we begin to see each other as family and as valuable, I think that's where the mind shift maybe comes in rather than, hey, respect them because they're old. Like, <laughs> If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I think that was like more available to start saying um, the, mo- the more that some of the adults were openly welcoming them in the sanctuary too. Mm. So the more I felt like, and I don't, I wouldn't have like withheld it, but the more I was able to feel like the teens were supported the more it was like, okay, well, we can support them too. Mm-hmm. Like, and so and <laughs> for a while when we were going to the sanctuary a lot, it was like this pep talk of like now, and like the adults don't come upstairs where the youth room is a lot or anything. There's not a lot of like um, one-on-one support all the time. You know, there's just not time every week for that. So I would have to point out the ways that they could visually see, like you have adults that are actively supporting you, even if you don't know their names. So we need to support them. Um, and then it, I feel like it became more like, okay, I can be quiet. I, I can be quiet for 20 minutes <laughs> like, because, because we were able to see the support from the adults coming in. But I'm curious, have you ever done any kind of like, mentor pairing maybe your people just can't do that right yet but like adopt like adopt a grandparent or something like that where like they do get to know a person like one-on-one so like you're so that it's not as scary like I don't know that person like you actually do walk in and you do know that person like or does that just not in your context so no we we do have that um we call them prayer partners and um the the adults adopted a teen or a kid some of them have had the same prayer partner at least since the beginning beginning of COVID I did this in the first (laughs) I did this in the first year of ministry here Mm -hmm. when I was grappling for anything that would work Mm -hmm. um (laughs) but it was like right at the beginning of the school year of 2018 we did kind of a an adopt a kid um and it it went okay um, the first several months, we actually had 
one of the best events actually every year at Christmas is one of the best events of my ministry um, where we have a Christmas party with the, the kids or the teens and their prayer partners. Mm -hmm. So, and we do like, like assigned, not assigned, but assigned seating where they're with their prayer partners at dinner and they eat. And then um, most, well, all of the prayer partners get their kids something for Christmas. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of, um, our own, I'm saying it's kind of our own angel tree yeah. as opposed to going outside for it. And also the church does a small gift for all of the children and teens too. Mm -hmm. So even if there's not something going on at home, they will get this really fun party that involves the adult that's actively praying for them all the time and the church, and then also some fun. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, it always depends on the adult and the, and the kid or child or teen, whether their attendance is all the time, or if the adult is really good at looking for them mm -hmm. and finding them. Uh, that's been the best scenario is when I have adults who will seek out that child or teen every time they're here, even if, the child or teen doesn't have great attendance. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's actually been a game changer for some of my teens mm -hmm. and why their attendance has boosted. So it's mm -hmm. done really well, even if not every relationship has done exceptional, the program has done exceptional. It expands the church too, right? Like the church isn't just now Pastor Amy and and what's going on in the youth room. Now it's also this person who is over there that knows my name too. Like, yes. that makes sense. Yeah. It's also um, the adults. I think that's one of the things is like, Kids and teens follow the example of adults, whether we whether they would admit it or not. Mm -hmm. So when an adult opens their world more and their church more, then the teenager will too. So when the adults have sought them out, it that has been a really big bridge for some of the teenagers mm -hmm. to then feel like the church is actually theirs. Like this isn't just my youth group, this is my church. Yeah. And so like, as we're talking, I'm sitting here thinking, well, why do we expect teens to kind of fall into that, but we don't place the same expectation on our adults? You no, know, we do not. Um, well, the, okay, now you're going to come in and you're going to be quiet, but why don't we say, okay, now the teens are coming in, coming in and you're going to be hospitable to them. <laughs> um, so that, I guess that leads to my next question is why does the church tend not to expend, extend the hospitality to the other? And I guess in, in this specific question would be why do adults tend not to extend hospitality to teens? Like, why is that? Because, <laughs> because adults just expect everybody to like, if if I open the physical door of the church, that's extending hospitality for some. Hmm. 
And it has got to be more than that for people, not just, not just teens, but the unchurched around the world to across the country more to walk into the doors, walk in the doors of the church. Opening the doors and saying everybody's welcome is not actually offering hospitality. It's just like, it's the beginning of it. It's part of it, but it's not hospitality. So I think showing actual hospitality is looking for ways, actively looking for ways for, if we're talking about teenagers, for teenagers to feel not just like they're allowed to be here, but like we want them here. We look for ways that they will see that and do them. So like one of the things that churches can literally implode over is style of musical worship. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's also literally one of the ways that people feel comfortable walking into a new space. If we can't, if we can't even grasp the idea of doing worship songs that we don't personally enjoy, we are not actually willing to be hosp- like hospitable to newcomers. Yeah. If the teens can sing some hymns and not start rolling around the floor like banshees, then the adults can sing some songs that are on active Christian radio. Yeah, it's reminding me of our conversation we had last time about extending hospitality to how we talked about how we need to be opening up doors for women. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about let's open up spaces for our youth also to be among us. This isn't something that they grow into and step into one day. They are ready now to step into some roles. So as you were talking about the person who thinks hospitality is opening the front door and welcoming people, like what would that look like if one of your youth opened the front doors and started welcoming older people to walk through the door, you know, what was that? And you're using the example like music. What would it look like if your youth led your worship or read in your prayer service or your youth took offering, you know, all of like I'm echoing back to our previous conversation, but if we invite them into participating and, and actually physically being part of the service rather than um, just, people who are sitting there watching it happen to someday maybe be a part. That's how we actually open the door to being a family rather than just observing. Yes. I think too, if we're going to go that route, this goes a little bit further than welcoming women because we were kind of talking about churched women. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So if we're talking about unchurched, if we're talking about people who have very rarely sat in um, any kind of, and I don't mean traditional songs, I mean a traditional looking church service. Even if we have shiplap, there's a service of church that's pretty traditional. Um, If we actually want the unchurched to come in and serve, then we make space 
for them to mess up. We make space for them to goof off and not get mad about it. We make space for them to say things out loud that are inappropriate without getting so offended that we forget that their salvation is a bigger deal. We have to make space for being uncomfortable and it not being about us. And some of that goes into the female, like the women in church conversation, but it goes way further when you start inviting people in who don't know that something is a cuss word. Mm -hmm. Because I have kids that didn't know certain words were cuss words. Right. How, how would they know? And I have kids that even know teens. I'm talking about teens right now. I have teens that even know, but when they're surrounded by it, both at home and school, it is very likely to come out of their mouth even when they're at church, mm -hmm. even if they know better because it slips. And then you add on anything they're going through and it's even more likely to come out. And if we make a bigger deal about that than how happy we are that they're there, that's not welcoming them into the space. It's got to be a bigger deal to let the children come to me than it is about all the semantics in the room. Let's talk about how, we'll just talk from your perspective, how you might do ministry as opposed to how you might have experienced youth as, as a teenager yourself? Um, I had a really good youth experience, but I was churched. And so I would prefer, like, I try to think about the perspective of the outsiders in my youth group growing up. And were we doing ministry for the kids whose parents were already in choir? Mm -hmm. Or were we, were we doing ministry for the kids who maybe didn't eat dinner that night? Or were beat earlier that day? Um, and that's harder to look at because I don't have that perspective. I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But when our youth group was predominantly the kids whose parents were in choir together, I, I, re, I have to realize that we, we missed the mark somewhere. We may have been, ministry may have been good and doing what it was supposed to be doing for a certain demographic, but we were missing the mark on everyone being welcome. Yeah, so, so. talk about what have you discovered since you've started working with unchurched kids? Like, there's some things we just take for granted if we have grown up in the church and we have this idea, this image of what our youth group was like and our, our kind of like um, ex our expectations, like not necessarily even on purpose, like that was just our lived experience. So what have you discovered since you've started working with unchurched kids that if I'm a church person or a youth pastor and I'm dealing with this, like, what are some really great things that you could say? Here's what I've learned. And um, yeah, like help us, help us as the church. 
what I have learned, it's so, it, everything I have to say sounds really simple, but it's things I had to learn. Um, that it's not about me and how I feel and how the kids make me feel and what they unload on me that day. Um, it's not about how they make me feel because the gospel isn't about me. So I'm going to put it in perspective of talking about um, race and inequality and all of that stuff. That's really hard conversations. I feel like especially for white Christians, Mm -hmm. because we feel like we haven't been the ones to discriminate and we haven't been the ones to cause problems in this discussion. And so this conversation can be very, very sticky and all of that stuff. But when it comes down to it, what my kids say about their experience as a, maybe a, a black person doesn't, it's not about me. How does their experience play into the gospel is what this is about. So because a lot of them won't just come in and talk about like, oh, I, I got beat up by my dad today. They're not talking about the stuff that's ex- that they're experiencing at home. But they will talk about stuff that they experienced outside of the home. So several of them have been openly open about talking about when they feel someone has been racist towards them. Or even the amount of pictures of white Jesus that they've seen. And that seems so trivial for, for anyone, if you want to say that. But for that teenager in that moment, it was, it was important enough for them to bring up and it's not about me. So I have to let that moment happen. I can't just shut it down because the church didn't do it to be mean And I can't just shut it down because I didn't have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. Like I can either shut it down and therefore possibly shut down anything else that teen might have said to me, or I can let us talk about that thing that doesn't feel like it was important to the lesson. Mm -hmm. Come to find out it was important to the lesson because some of my kids have never felt connected to Jesus because he's always been the white guy in the white church and my kids have never fit into the white church and my kids have never wanted to go to the white church. So to not only come into the very much white church and then still experience this, do I even fit in the gospel? Like the race conversations matter and they they are very uncomfortable at times, but if you make it, if I can make it not about me and let them talk and then let Jesus do the talking for me, then ministry can continue to happen. I didn't grow up with that experience. I feel like there was always somebody with an answer that made, that made them feel good. I think the church general does that. Like, why did someone have to die? And we have these cop-out answers. We don't really know why, but we have cop-out answers because it's easier for us. That doesn't help the people you're doing ministry with. 
that only helps me feel better in the moment because I didn't really have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Roundabout (laughs) thing to say, but like ministry is never about me. It's always about bringing in my in my world, it's always about bringing young people to the cross. And how do we do that? I think one of the first things that I did was I took down all picture, all the pictures of white Jesus, which meant I took down all the pictures of Jesus because nobody has pictures of brown Jesus. It's, it's kind of tearing down things that it, in our own, in our own self would be like, well, that makes me uncomfortable because I'm not used to look, think, thinking of Jesus as brown. But when I actually like think through it, yep, he was brown. <laughs> and that's a, a brilliant way to be more hospitable. I've also gone up, like the only pictures that stay up on our walls of people are of them. So the, and like, if I put anything, if I do anything, it's either like void of a skin color or I, I do go out of my way to find like, if I have to use something like nativities, we have brown nativities. Mm -hmm. And I think there's one floating around that's white that gets put out as well. Cause I'm not against them. But I've looked very specifically for brown. Mm -hmm. Because, like, it doesn't do me any harm to see a more historically accurate depiction (laughs) of the nativity anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's more inclusive. And I think, just because we're on it, I think that people want to say so often, like, it doesn't matter, it shouldn't matter, color doesn't matter, we should be colorblind. And I'm going to tell you, my four-year-old white child absolutely notices Mm. and picks, like, she picks the white dolls and she Mm. picks, we got some, I bought matching pajamas at Target for her and um, my son that's younger. And the ones they had were in her size. It was like white Santas and snowmen. And the ones that they had in his size were not, they were African-American or brown Santa and snowmen. And I don't really care, so I got them. (laughs) And um, when I was going to do a picture on them, she was very specific. She was like, I want the Santa that looks like me. And I was like, well, you do have it. Like, it worked out fine. We didn't have to, whatever. But for anyone who wants to say that it doesn't matter, why would color matter? If it matters to my white child, it probably matters to other children. Absolutely. So, so why? Uh, I could go off on a whole tangent on dolls, but I will not. Mm-hmm. Um, but working with Angel Tree for a couple of years and doing gifts for children that I didn't know what they looked like, it really, really matters. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but the ones that are more likely to speak up and say, oh, I wanted that one look like my daughter. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this, we expect other people to be fine with this, but when it comes down to it, 
our own children are probably not fine with the opposite way. And I think that's the way we've always worked in churches, at least the churches I've attended, is it's fine. It doesn't hurt anybody. This is fine. But is it actually hurting somebody who doesn't have the voice to speak up? Yeah, I, I think these are ways, too, that I think, honestly, some people have never even considered. Because, like, what you're saying is they've always attended a white church, so they haven't ever come in contact with images of Jesus looking different or haven't considered it. And so that's where I want to be really careful. Like, again, I'm not insulting anybody or, um, yeah, I just, these are things that are important conversations because if we've never talked about them or considered them, then we don't realize that they're issues. Right. So it's good that your youth are talking about it and not then that you're not just like, well, that's just the way it is. Like you actually said, this is hurtful and not welcoming. And so I'm going to remove these images and try to do better by finding Images that look like them. Yes. Because the point of ministry is to lead people to Christ, not to make people like fall in line with what I think. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I think that's what would have been lost in ministry that when I was a teenager is... Mm-hmm we were to fall in line with what was going on Mm. or why are you even here? Why are you coming to youth group? You don't need to be here if you don't want to be here. And sometimes it was just, I think some of those kids wanted to be there. They just didn't know how to fall in line. So those are some of the mistakes we're making. What are some of the things that we are getting right? So one of the things, to be very specific, one of the things my church is getting right is being open to learning, is being open to trying, is doing their very best to work through this really messy part of ministry that we've that we've not worked through and this is church general that church general has not worked through since and ever you, and how do you get them there is that something that you have done is that just something that's happened naturally over time like how do we talk to the youth pastor who's struggling with that and says okay i want that how do i get my people to move there or at least move in that direction I know that a really big part of it is the is the a hundred percent support from the senior adults and senior pastors. Mm-hmm. There's not there's not a senior adult that could go to one of those two men and and complain about the teens 
and have one of those pastors complain with them. That there's absolute support for youth ministry from leadership in my church, mm-hmm. which is not the case everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I would easily say that if a church doesn't have the support of the senior pastor for teenagers, it's not going to go well. Mm-hmm. It just can't. And that's the, that's the senior pastor's fault. And I think we should, we should tackle that. Um, the other way is just honestly, I think time, because I can't just get up in front of the church and tell them what they should do mm-hmm. and yeah. have it go well. Um, I think it takes everyone, everyone that's already on board taking the time to keep pushing through this. We can't just give up on making the church multi-generational and multicultural. We have to keep working on it. And I think that's part of the journey that Jesus says it's not going to be easy, but it's not just, it's not just a personal journey. That's not going to be easy. I think the whole thing is going to be kind of hard. Mm-hmm. So, Amy, uh, if we can just have like a honest like moment for a second, what are some stereotypes that you think that you help personally, or that maybe some of the people of your congregation held that you were challenged with and had to let go or grow through or reimagine in order to work with? the unchurched urban population that God has given you to work with? Um, I think one of the general stereotypes that I, I don't think I held it walking into this church, but I've definitely held it before, um, was that there was no reason for someone who's African-American, like not to trust me before they knew me. Like if I had never done anything to you, there's no reason for you to hold anything against me. Um, and there's all these (laughs) trigger happy words that we can say around that. Um, but I'm going to leave some of that out, but I think, I think the notion that our African-American or black brothers and sisters don't have a reason to not trust us when other white people proclaiming the name of Jesus have given them reason not to trust them. Mm. So for me walking into this, I had been, I had been challenged, God had challenged me within the time frame of my last ministry um, assignment before I got here. I did not walk into this knowing exactly what to do and say, but I had already started to deal with that assumption. But a lot of people in churches have not because they didn't personally do something to someone. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you trust me? Mm -hmm. I didn't do anything to you. How come you get to treat me this way? Um, But the truth of the matter is, is that when white people start reaching into predominantly not white communities, they often carry with them the white savior complex. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that, as simply as we can put it, looks like 20 well-off teenagers who are white going into a mostly black nation, working with kids for a week and coming home with 20,000 pictures of those kids that they'll never see again Mm -hmm. and talking about the impact it had on those kids. Mm -hmm. So explain, like, seriously, so this is not new to me, but for someone who might be listening that says, well, I don't see a problem with that or, or I don't understand why that would be hurtful. Help us understand why that's not okay. The, the short-term missions. Yeah. Like how, like, why would, uh, what if I, what if I say, well, I'm white and I went on a mission trip, but that doesn't mean I'm the savior. Right. But help us understand what we mean by that term and why. And just for the record, I have been on a short-term mission trip and, thought I made such a great big difference. Um, So I'm not coming at this attacking anybody. Um, I think that short-term missions do serve a purpose. I think that they can help lead people to callings. I think that they can help lead people to viewing the world larger and seeing the importance of it. I don't have an issue on the surface with it, but I don't think we walk into those situations and help our young people understand better mm-hmm. what's going on where very likely it would have made a much bigger impact for us to raise all this money as though we were going to go on a mission trip and then send it to the church mm-hmm. that, that we were going to go to yes. so that they can hire their own people to work on the building who are more than capable of working mm-hmm. on that building and put their own people to work and use their own resources and use their own community and put our wealth within their community. That would make an enormous difference. I've also heard stories of, um, you know, children in these really, really poverty-stricken areas, some of them orphans, not even knowing that the white people were different every time they came. Mm. like they didn't know that it was a different group of white people because they thought we they thought all the white people looked alike anyway and they always came with candy and games Mm -hmm. and all the same kind of stuff so there wasn't this impact that they thought they were making and how again how much more of an impact for those orphans could have been made with all the money that was spent for those 25 teenagers to travel to that country. So again, I don't think that short-term missions has to be ugly. I don't think that it's terrible. I know that God spoke to me on the missions trip I went on. I think that there's good things to happen, but I also think we should be much more picky with who we're sending over on these mission trips. And I think we need to be careful not to let people of course I don't think I'm the savior but if I go and I think I'm putting on the best VBS that these kids have ever experienced (laughs) and I think that the work that we're doing on their roof is going to be life-changing that has to do with the white savior complex if I think that I can do the job better than the person who's hired to be the children's director already working at that church Mm -hmm. then I'm carrying the white savior complex 
Yeah. So when we talk about this in the context of mission trips or, or leaving our country now, how do we do those same things to people of our own country? What are, um, I'm thinking of like, especially we're so guilty of this at Christmas time when we just collect food or items to take to those who we deem less fortunate, right? Um, but what we're talking about is, is bordering, well, not bordering. We're talking about dehumanizing people, like making them those people over there who have less. And I'm going to go and buy them something to make me feel better. But instead of just handing people free food or gifts at Christmas time or whenever, here in our own country, just like how you explained, we do on mission trips. What are some more humanizing ways that we can do that right here at home? I think that we can view ministry as a as a as a marathon mm. instead of a sprint. So sometimes we see like great big events with great big giveaways and there's nothing wrong with those. I'm so glad churches can do that. Um, but we go in and we, we serve lunch and we give some bikes away and then we leave. Mm -hmm. And that, that meal is important, but probably what's more important is not more important. Another important thing would be food in the home all week. And also not categorizing, like if there's not food in the home all week, not just automatically assuming that someone is mishandling funds. Yeah. That's actually, that's one of the things I have that maybe the most when there has been a, when there's been like, can we do this? What can we do? There's financial needs. It's been like, they try to, people try to say it like, I don't know, like they're not saying it rudely, but they are just mm -hmm. kind of like, well, and you know, mom has probably spent the money where it doesn't go. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you literally don't know the people I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You don't know their first name. But because they're struggling financially, they must be mishandling money. Mm -hmm. Right. I have even had, I anyway, I've had way worse comments than that come from people who I still love and do church ministry with, where mm -hmm. because they come from poverty, and if we're being honest, because they are not white and come from poverty, they are assumed to be mishandling money. Even though if we looked at any real statistics, like white people get way more government assistance than anyone else. But we don't like to talk about that because that's messier. That doesn't fit our narrative. So if someone, if someone is in need, it's like, well, where did their food stamps go? Mm -hmm. 
well, they, uh, they can only spend it on food. So I don't know what you're asking. <laughs> like it went to food. I guess it wasn't enough this month. Can I go get them $40 worth of groceries, please? Mm-hmm. This, I just, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So where's the bigger need? I'm sorry. Where's the bigger need? Mm-hmm. And I guess it's, I, I guess it's the need to be willing to get your hands dirty because you won't see the bigger need until you know the people. Mm-hmm. I don't know where, I don't know where I came from for this thought, but I'm going to this thought. It's easy to give to people you don't know. Yes. And it's easy to judge what they do with what you gave when you don't know them. Mm-hmm. It is very messy and becomes much more difficult when you start to get to know the lives attached to the judgment. And it becomes harder to judge when we love. It becomes much harder to judge. When, I mean, sometimes you don't even have to love that hard if you know their story. Right. I, you, it's hard to judge someone who has walked a road you've never had to walk. But it's a lot easier to never know that. It's, that's the white savior complex is to give so that you feel good. Mm-hmm. And then you can walk away and go back to your, not you, but go back to your life and you've done good and and... If they can't pull themselves out of poverty, that's not on you because you gave. But yeah, I'm I just think there's just about- this large judgment on people who live in less fortunate or more poverty-stricken areas because there's also no scripture on teaching people how to not live in poverty. There's no scripture on people in poverty changing. And there's plenty of scripture that tells us that the poor will always be here and to yep. help the widow and the orphan and the poor. And, and it doesn't say so that they can do. so that they can do better for themselves and not rely on the government. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say so they like so that you can give them a hand up and not a handout. It doesn't give parameters on the poor it puts parameters on our giving. It gives us, it gives us something to do, not the poor. Um, I'm thinking about the question that I started with about stereotypes and I'm realizing, well, maybe I'm not realizing it, but I'm thinking about how perhaps we need to start we're starting with the wrong question. The question we're starting with is how do we go and help those people? The question might be, what do we need to learn about ourselves and about what stereotypes we hold before we're even able to help anybody? Because if we think this is the problem, but the real problem is us and the way um, that we think we're serving. I've been reading uh, Toxic Charity and um, this is just highlighting a lot of what I've been learning and reading. And so 
yeah. I think we have lots to learn. And it's, it doesn't just, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's going to take humility. And then saying, I was wrong. It's going to take a lot of humility. I think that one of the largest stumbling blocks of the white evangelical church is not accepting that we are the white evangelical church. And we have never been the multicultural evangelical church. Which is and not anyone I've ever talked to yeah. who's been defensive of that, all I've had to do is ask the percentage of people within their church that were not white. Right. And it doesn't actually help the conversation, so I should probably go a different way, but it does shut the conversation down because it's point. It's like, how are you defending the broken system when you can see the product of the broken system? Just because you love everyone doesn't mean the church has always really loved everyone. And it definitely doesn't mean the church has actually always been welcoming to everyone. And again, saying all are welcome and opening the door is not enough. Mm -hmm. And we see that. Our churches are still segregated mm -hmm. by and large. Well, and that goes back to how you were saying, like, that, that we come in with the mentality of, there's no reason for them not to trust me. I'm a nice person, right? So I'm opening the door. They should just come in. But the truth mm -hmm. is, is, they don't know that. In their lived experiences, white people can't be trusted or they're not very kind. That's their experience. And we can't say, well, that's not true when it is true for them. I think I came to this when I realized um, I was telling, I had, I had gotten bold enough to tell people parts of my story and some of it um, involves men taking advantage or forcing. And I had men almost immediately not like not call what I said into question, but like veer off into, well, you know, there's always these false allegations mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. blah. And I'm like, that's not, but mine's not false. And I'm standing here in front of you telling you that this happened to me. And, and they're like, well, but you know, the percentages are wrong. And I'm like, but there's five people at this table. And one of them is telling you mm -hmm. that this has happened. So one in five at this table is telling you, and you're still saying that one in five, which isn't even the accurate percentage anymore, mm -hmm. but you're still saying that one in five can't be accurate even though that is what we're living in in this moment at this table mm -hmm. and we didn't set this up for fun <laughs> this just happened one in five and I was getting this like weird roundabout not all men not me it's false it's whatever and it was kind of at that moment that I not that moment but it was in that time period that I started to be like I haven't been listening to other people either. Right. I, I feel so stupid to have opened up to these people 
And actually the ones that started, that came back at me and were like, well, you know, percentage of blah, 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 are the ones I don't trust anymore. Mm-hmm. And so when someone who, when it, when a young black woman tells me that she doesn't like white people, it's one, that's the surface of what she wants to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if she goes on to tell me more because of the way someone's treated her or the way whatever, if my response is, but I'm not like that, mm-hmm. then I'm doing to her what some men have done to me. Or any scenario, if you, if you have a time in your life where you have shared with someone something that happened to you or something you've been through or have experienced and they come back at you and explain to you somehow why it's not 100% valid, can you trust them anymore? Right. Yeah, if your so, response is defense and to tell you why you're wrong, I'm going to stop sharing. I'm going to not trust you anymore. I'm, I'm going to feel not welcomed. And I think by and large, that's what white people do because we think, but I, but I would never follow you in a store. I would never cross the road if I saw you on the same side of the road as me. Mm-hmm. I would never treat you differently than the person sitting right next to you who happens to be white. I would never do that, which by the way, is probably a lie, but mm-hmm. I would never do that. So what you're telling me can't be true. I just did it to them. I just, I just took their story and this very vulnerable moment, even if it doesn't seem vulnerable. If I have a teenager telling me that she doesn't trust white people, that's vulnerable. I'm as, I'm about as white as they come. (laughs) I am, I am so light. They are not coming at me from any angle. Like maybe she understands. Um, For them to tell me, I don't care if they're acting strong. That's a vulnerable moment for them to trust me with that information. And in many ways, they're seeing what I say. They're they're watching for my reaction. Am I just going to defend these white people I don't even know? Mm -hmm. Or am I going to trust the African-American teen standing in front of me sharing with me? And so often we will defend the people who we represent before we believe the people we don't understand. And we don't, we don't understand the power that that holds, whether we, when we don't believe it holds power against them. Like you're not, you're, you're not human enough for me to give any kind of um, belief to your story. But then the opposite, when I say, I believe you, I'm sorry that happened. You know, when, when I say that and I just say, tell me your story, that gives power and it opens up doors. Yes, I and, agree with you. Yeah, and, and it, it gives you then as a person who is, then wanting to talk about, you know, God and, and <laughs> life is, you know, 
that gives you space and welcoming space to talk into their lives. They don't want to hear anything you have to say about anything if you don't even believe what they're telling you is true. Right. No, they don't. And we think, well, we're telling them about Jesus. Of course, they should want to hear that. Like, you're talking to people who have been ignored. They don't want to hear anything you have to say. Right. I think that's one of the things that we don't understand when we approach ministry is that literally, like, everything we do is supposed to be leading to the gospel. And so when we close doors to important conversations, we cl- like if I am an avenue, if I am one of the people that's leading people to the to the cross and I actively close conversations off or ideas off that are important to them, then I'm closing off my my accessibility to them as well. Like I'm closing that door. Mm -hmm. I can't lead to them. I can't lead them to the gospel near as easily now. Mm -hmm. So we just, I think we view youth ministry as like Bible studies and worship and all of these things when it is far more important, the relationships that happen, not just with me either, but the relationships that happen within the church and the youth room that make people, I don't want to call it vulnerable, but it is make people vulnerable to believing an intense story about a man who came to earth as God. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to call it unbelievable, but it's pretty unbelievable. And if I want anyone to be willing to listen to me, tell them about, an experience I had that they can't see, I have to be willing to hear them too. Outside of the walls of the church building, like your job is to, you know, lead the youth while in the church building. But then outside of that, I know that you are, you go beyond that. You are not just the Sunday, Wednesday kind of, Pastor, you are involved in advocacy and are constantly advocating for your your kids. And um, I'm wondering, like, how you got involved with that? Was it out of necessity? Was it, is it, you know, obviously it's part of our calling as Christians, but just um, your, your church is in a unique situation in that they... Um, actually do work with unchurched urban kids, right? Not a lot of white churches do that. And so I, I'm I'm wondering if you could talk to us about how you fell into this role of advocacy, but then also maybe speak to a pastor or youth pastor that would also like to do that, but just doesn't know the right steps to do it. Um, any advocacy, I grew up with parents that advocated for people. Um, both of them advocated when necessary and that any, any knowledge I have of advocacy 
for for whatever it is, for whoever it's for, whatever it's for, um, was passed down. And advocacy for my community that I live in right now and the level of poverty, the level of discrimination, the level of all of that stuff came from necessity, like you said. Um, I didn't, I thought I knew a lot more than I did when I came into this situation. So most of anything I've been part of has been much bigger than who I am. And I'm only part of it because I don't think I have a choice Mm -hmm. if I'm called to present the gospel. Like I, I see how you fight for trying to find housing for your people and food and all of the things that we consider rights <laughs> that are just not everybody's lived reality and, and that you work so hard at that. I think that we have to actively put ourselves in situations where we're helping other people. And then you won't really have the option to advocate or not. And maybe that's just me because as I think about it, there are people who have, who have not. But um, I think when you start advocating, you can't just choose when to stop. I think you have to have your own boundaries. Like I, I can't just let people live in my home because they need a home that's that's a lack of a boundary but the most recent experience of walking through homelessness with especially one family was learning not to duck out when there wasn't an answer Mm -hmm. because the system is really messy I think something that people should know who've never experienced homelessness is that it's not as simple as dialing a helpline that people put out and then you tell them that you're homeless and then they step in and start giving you housing. That's right. not what the real world is like. And, um, and I will even say that organizations will be more kind to a pastor or someone, a pastor advocate, than they will be to someone who's asking for the help. Mm-hmm. So if I call like that, which means sometimes it's important for the pastor or the advocate to make the call as well, because Mm -hmm. sometimes they can get further than the one asking for help. But it also means that just because you got a different kind of reaction doesn't mean that the other person was lying Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. other organizations have been a lot, a lot more kind to me than they have been to people who are asking for help. Mm Um, but the, the deciding that you can't duck out is probably one of the hardest and maybe most important parts because I've watched people kind of advocate in terms of like, they'll look for the helplines and they'll look for this and they'll look for that and they'll give it to the person who needs it, even though the person has already actually called all of those numbers (laughs) multiple times. And when they are still homeless, those, some of those people will 
will just revert back to, they must be making excuses. Mm. Mm. They must have done something to get themselves here. Yeah. I don't know about in your area, but in where I live, there's housing is a huge crisis. Enormous crisis. We, we rent and because I'm in ministry. So, um, we rent and we are still sitting at the rent price when we moved here nearly four years ago. And we, it was a little bit below the average I'd say like we got a good price, but it's not tons below what it was. And we are now, because she has not raised rent, knock on wood, mm-hmm. we are now paying less in rent than what landlords are charging in areas that I would not live in. Yeah. And I don't say that mean, yeah. I say that the, mm-hmm. these landlords are taking advantage of the system. No, yeah, I can I can vouch for that. I just sat with um, someone this week who works in this um, social service kind of field that helps people find affordable housing, and she said the people that are coming in her office are are not the image that you have. People who are chronically homeless; these are two, uh, whether they're married or not, two income people who their rent has just been raised because of the extortion on housing right now, who are working full-time jobs and are basically being forced into homelessness because they cannot afford the ginormous hike in their rent. Uh It is a crisis. And so for those people who are already um, scrapping by, they cannot afford a, $200, $400, $600 hike that that is going to send them on the street. And then what are we going to do? It is unhelpful for the church then to say, well, they just need to pull themselves up or they need to get a better job or they need to whatever. Like that is unhelpful um, when this is the reality. And a lot of people just don't know this is the reality because it's not their reality. There aren't easy answers. And I'm not necessarily asking you for the answer, but I think what I'm trying to say is it's important that we walk alongside people. We hear their stories, we validate their stories, and we get involved in the messy. Yes. Because like you said, it's easier to duck out when it gets hard because I that feels uncomfortable to me. <laughs> I think it's also like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's easier to just judge. It's easier to assume. If we don't have relationships with people who don't look different than us and live in different neighborhoods than we do, then we do not know. <laughs> not really. We don't, no. we're not really educated on the realities. We just hold our, we just hold what we hold, you know. It's also really interesting to me how many people will just decide they don't care about the children? Mm-hmm. Like, and they won't say that. They will act it out, though. Um, in, a, in a bad situation, even, even if the parent didn't pay rent for three months and got evicted, to just 
write the to write the family off is to write the children off. Yeah. And there's got to be a way for Christ followers to say, I don't know, I don't know the answer, but we can't ignore the problem. Josh Packer pointed out in his springtide research the impact that COVID-19 is having on young people and how it, not just on young people, but since his study was based on that, um, has brought about just so much isolation. And then now as we're trying to get back to whatever we think is normal, um, the difficulty of being back in groups and being back around people um, but something they really highlighted was the isolation and did they feel like the church was present for them in that time of that we had to be separated in a lot of um, unknown situations. And so I'm wondering if you have seen any of that um, in some of your kids. And also, I know that, you know, groups of color were um, unproportionately affected by covid um, and then maybe how you guys just chose to respond during that difficult time of not knowing how to respond during a pandemic. Um, well, first I would say everything we did was like, uh, you don't, you don't like to have knee jerk responses, but to a pandemic, that's what everything was, mm-hmm. was just like, okay, let's try this. Um, so we met the kids stopped meeting when everything closed down, which was like their spring break that year. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they just closed schools for the rest of the year. And I, I don't think we did it right away, but it just got to the point where I realized like, especially for the younger ones in my group who didn't have their own phones, or even if they do, I don't really text them because their parent prefers to be the one that texts me just because they're being safe. Um, I realized very quickly that we could not just lose our group, like attendance wise, but they could, they could feel like they lost us. So, um, there's, I have, like I have a couple of volunteers, but one is my main volunteer who is here for everything. And she and I started loading up every Sunday. I was helping with worship on our live feed and I would get done with worship and then we would go get in the van and she would always bring, she's like a saint on earth. She would always bring this massive amount of fruit um, where she would be giving like gallon size Ziploc bags at every house. And we drove literally to every house that our kids lived in, um, including one that lived way too far to be doing this. There's only one that like lived really far, but we did it for them during this because we just thought it was necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we actually, and we didn't abide by all the rules. I am not anti, I'm, I don't want to make anything political, but I'm not, I'm not super one way or the other, but I believe in the science of masks. And if you don't have to touch people, you shouldn't, because obviously you're 
you're sharing germs. Like it's all just kind of like, if you can keep distance, you should keep distance if you don't want to share germs. And we thankfully both agreed. We just believed in hugs and we believed in hanging out for a minute. And we believe that if that's what we're supposed to do, God was going to keep us safe. Um, And I don't believe that for being careless, but for kids who maybe didn't get any hugs from any parents in the last week, Mm -hmm. this was just necessary. Um, So we spent every Sunday for about two months driving from, I mean, probably 120 miles total every Mm -hmm. week. Um, and I did it on a lot of Wednesdays as well. Um, but I usually did that by myself and it wasn't, I didn't go like the furthest that we would go on Sundays, but that's how we kept them talking. Mm -hmm. That was also when I started doing more and more with group texts, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but Mm -hmm. it was for the high schoolers, Mm -hmm. for me to be initiating like group conversations on Snapchat, they Mm -hmm. really honestly started responding differently. Mm-hmm. So for me to be initiating things, and again, I think that it made a difference that it wasn't on just like text messaging. It was on Snapchat yeah. where they were spending probably 90% of their day. So I started purposely putting myself in the space that they were, I mean, we were looking for ways to be in their space basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually, um, in terms of COVID, like if for the reason of COVID, we didn't lose any kids or teens. We kept all of them. Wow. Which is kind of a miracle. Yeah. So I was going to ask you what the results were. So, I mean, like the whole idea that you kept being incarnate as safely as you could possibly be and outside the walls of the church, the church doesn't have to happen in the building that it, I think this proves that, the relationships were there and needed. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Amy, I really appreciate your um, time and this really important discussion that I think, I feel like we've just like kind of surface touched today, Um, but we could talk about it for hours. So, um, we should probably stop somewhere, but I like to close my conversations with two questions. Um, versus, and you can talk about what we talked about before or today's conversation or a mix, whatever. Um, but I'd like to know your, perhaps your greatest concern for today's church and then um, second, what gives you the most hope for the future? My greatest concern for today's church is that they will be closed in 20 years. Mm. I know that there are some churches doing it well, but at least within the denomination and area that, that I live in, the majority of leadership will have retired in 20 years mm-hmm. and the majority of membership will be, will be heaven bound. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not in 20 years, but, but enough of them will be heaven bound in 20 years that I'm very afraid of dwindling numbers. If we don't do something drastic 
and uncomfortable and necessary very soon. That's, that's my concern with most churches that I see is there's not a pass down of leadership and there's nobody to pass the leadership down to. And so then what gives you hope for the future then? Um, what gives me hope for the future is the young people that I see. And um, the hope for the future too probably bigger than that, if we're being realistic, is that the gospel is ever present and ever relevant. And so the millennial in me says, if the church is closed, that doesn't mean that the gospel is done. So what gives me hope for the future is that it doesn't have to look like what we think of as church anyway. Right. We just, we just have to keep doing what we're supposed to be doing. And I think God's going to provide the space and the place and all the things for us to do that in. Yeah. If we can get there to say it might not look anything like today, but it'll still be the truth and the gospel. Yes. And there are some really, really cool people that are growing up in the church right now. And so the young people I see in the church give me a lot of hope for the, the continuation of the gospel. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time and um, insights into youth ministry and ways that we need to be more kingdom thinking and um, neighbor welcoming. So thanks, Amy. Thank you. This has been the Millennial Pastor Podcast. This show is created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. It is edited by Caden Barksdale. Original music by Andrew Jones. And today's host is Amy McCroffsky. We thank you so much for listening. And we would ask that you would rate, review, subscribe, and share with friends. And until next time, stay tuned for the next Millennial Pastor Podcast.